Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. We chose to watch Coda, the Academy Award-winning movie for 2021. This movie is about a blue-collar fishing family, three members of which are deaf, but the daughter of the family is not. The lead, Ruby Rossi, is played by Amelia Jones, an actress I've never before seen. And she acts as kind of their liaison to the hearing world. And the big diving board for her is that she loves to sing. And she has a sympathetic music teacher who wants to enable her plans because he believes in her, but only if she work real hard. I don't believe this is a great movie. I believe it is a solidly well-made movie. The sort of thing that probably would have been a mainstay if the networks were still producing things on television as a special for a Friday night or a made-for-television event because it's so thoughtfully trying to consider the hearing and the hearing-impaired communities as they confront one another. It was very good. It was very well done. I don't want to say it's like, you know, maudlin or saccharin, but it certainly does lean heavily into kind of that emotionally manipulative. Yeah. I didn't actually cry, but I I, I could have. Yeah. <laughs> I did. You I, know you what know, you're I, supposed I, to. Right, right. Absolutely. And I, and I did feel that. But I also feel that there are uh, many elements of this story that are sort of very convenient, which for me keep it from... Greatness. Let's pull apart a few of those secondary storylines. One is about her brother, Leo Rossi, played by Daniel Durant. And I believe that the three members of the Rossi family who are deaf are in life actual deaf actors. And that was important yeah. to make this thing happen because the mother's played by Marley Matlin, the Academy Award winner, who's an activist and an actress both. She's Jackie Rossi. And then the father is Frank Rossi, played by Troy Kotsur. All three of those performers, I think, are very excellent in what they do. But yeah. the secondary storyline about Leo, Leo develops an attraction to Ruby's best friend. And Ruby's best friend, Gertie, played by Amy Forsyth, seems to be completely open to this family dynamic and completely into Leo. And Leo, of course, wants to be the standard by which the family can continue to fish because he realizes Ruby's meant for something else. Right. So having that secondary romance bubble up and come to a sort of fruition, that's a convenience. Yeah. We realize that her music instructor... It's Mr. V. Mr. V. Bernardo Villalobos. Bernardo, right. Uh, played by Eugenio Derbez. He's convenient because he, he himself learned English to become then a musical instructor. There's a dynamic because the parents' business is foundering because there's not enough fish. So this family, the Rossies, have to negotiate and develop a co-op. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen, and I'm speaking quickly to cover up the fact that in the end, we're just watching a 17-year-old go through her senior year and differentiate herself from her family and go away to college. Boom. Yeah. Movie's over. Yeah. That, that's all this is. Right. Yeah. But it's dressed up well with a lot of this other fruit some of which is very touching, 
the sequences of signing and trying to communicate through vibration the music that I can naturally hear, including the music of my voice. Right, right. <laughs> these, these things matter and they're helpful to this movie. The next thing that I definitely want to place in front of you is that this is, to my knowledge, the first and only movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture that was never released in theaters commercially in the United States, which is a signal that this movie, which was which was distributed by Apple TV+, Plus, it's the only place where you can find it, by the way. <laughs> and yeah. that was news to me. I thought I'll get it from you know my Netflix DVD queue before it runs out in September 2023, but you can't. R.I.P. It's a crying shame. Totally is, and, and it forces the market. What I'm saying is this demonstrates a new way to think about how movies are going to be appreciated and distributed. And it's like the days of old, where if you were MGM, you would show your MGM stock in your MGM theaters, and then it would be taken away from theaters, and people would have to then know word of mouth, read the criticism, or listen to their neighbors talk about something they missed, to then increase its legend. Right. And this movie falls into that. Also, of course, it happened mid-COVID. Yeah. It's post-production happened during that moment. So the release pattern of watch it in your living room through this very bells and whistles streaming service from Apple, and they own a lot of the data of North America because we have iPhones, Yeah, causes this to be a natural thing for people to watch in their homes. Which, again, this is a small screen movie about a small screen set of events that got dressed up and magically won the big award. I'm unsure if in future years we're going to look back on this and say, yeah, that was the right choice. I'm looking up here what it was nominated against. Belfast, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. That's tough, because for my dollar, at least half of these have no business being right. nominated in this category. My suspicion is that this movie, it's clean. And the richness of this comes from the fact these actors can carry their weight. Mm-hmm. I enjoy watching them. Yeah. The budget was only $10 million bucks, so... Anytime we get a film like that, I'm automatically going to cut it a little more slack. That's a very good point. For instance, I'll likely turn out for Thor 18 whenever that happens before I'm gone. But these movies, they cost generally into the nine figures. And this one costs just, just into the eight figures. Mm -hmm. And I think we've said in our conversations before what a treasure it would be to just take one of those streams of flooded money and make 10 to 20 of these movies. You can make so many better movies. Because I did cry for Coda. Yeah. And I was worried about whether right. Ruby was going to stick to her guns of, I'm going to become myself, right. knowing that it's a hardship for my family. And I, I did cry for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, but not for the reasons <laughs> I should be crying. If an Academy Award-winning movie can be made for merely, and this is in quotes, $10 million, which of course for us is quite a lot of money. Yeah. But that's not even what Hemsworth gets paid to go to the gym. No, Will, Will Smith's salary, I think, starts at like 40 million bucks a movie. It's crazy, if, that, yeah. that kind of dollars. And this is a very thoughtful little movie, and I celebrate it along those lines. But does it measure up to the big Academy Award winning movies that I have seen that I do treasure? No, it doesn't. It, it's not that level. Yeah. But if we, if we think back through the decades of the Academy Award, which is often on my mind when I watch a Best Picture winner after the fact, like this one, mm. it matches up with something like Marty. Yeah. Now, Marty's not, to my taste, a very entertaining movie anymore. It's not a very great movie from the middle 50s. But it's a telling movie about the post-war moment in which people were trying to get over the war, like Marty, mm-hmm. and become regular citizens to develop regular families and be the backbones of their 
respective societies. Here, it's people in Gloucester. In that movie, it's New York City. Consequently, it's okay to spend time with the ordinary. Now, ordinary. This is a good-looking family. <laughs> yeah. And the people in their community, good-looking, healthy people. Mm-hmm. The disability that we're asked to deal with is treated in this movie, and I think handily as a lesson to the word I just used, disabled, as not a disability. It's an alternative reality that people live with, but these people enjoy a nice life, this Rossi family. Two-story house, they've got cars, they seem to have enough to eat, they've got money troubles, but that's just my life. Yeah, I uh, for, for me in particular... One of the things that I that I found, you know, really sort of hit home is the fact that Ruby is pursuing, you know, a career or a, a life goal that her parents, they're as supportive as they can be while not really having any idea what it is she's doing or how good she is at it. That's right. I, when seeing them in her audition for Berkeley, seeing her perform, but... Or, or even more so at the, at the fall concert at the right. high school. You're all I need to get by. You know, they're there to see her perform and they see everybody else liking it. So they kind of go along with that, but they really are incapable of appreciating what she's doing. That's right. This is made all the more intense, where we hear what's beginning to happen, and then it just fades right out in the sand. I'll sacrifice for you, dedicate my life to you. I will go where you lead, always Aside from the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I come from a family of contractors, and it always upsets members of their community when they're asked to redo a building that they're dealing with to make accommodations possible. When the building wasn't designed in the first place, it's a thing. But then how do you creatively adjust to all of that, which is a long way of saying, for many of us, our first real confrontation with ADA compliance began to happen with COVID, where you would see see all the signers next to the podiums yes. of public officials giving announcements about, listen, don't breathe on one another, would say Fauci, and then Trump would say something on top of Fauci, and then somebody would be signing. I think there was a big exposure for a lot of us to realize, oh, hey, look, there are forms of disability which had nothing to do with wheelchairs or missing limbs or right. these kinds of things which are more visually apparent. This is a leap. We often talk about sexuality as an invisible identity uh, sign. Mm -hmm. It's only until acted on can you recognize somebody's sexuality. To a degree, one's gender is similar. To a degree, a hearing-impaired person does the same thing. And many hearing-impaired people, this includes members of my extended family who don't have complete deafness but have trouble hearing, they learn to read lips. They learn to take social cues on when to giggle when to express discomfort, all of those things to get along because until it's performed or not performable, you can't really know that somebody's deaf. Right. When we look at the Rossies in their little Gloucester community, they look perfectly natural. They're not wearing ear horns like this is a Little Rascals episode from the 1930s. (laughs) They're just people. Yeah. And when gradually we learn that their impairment is, is made visual, by signing and other things about how they must behave to get along, it's something to see. Bringing this back to her audition, that when she begins to sign, it becomes dance. Tears and fears and feeling proud to say I love you right out loud. Dreams and schemes 
these crowds I've looked at a life that way Thinking back to those translators, those interpreters doing the compliance signing for those public speakers during COVID, there was this one guy who I think was bald with a white beard. I would peek to watch. I feel like he was one of CNN's feed correspondents. Mm -hmm. Not only was he signing, he was his face was emoting things. He moved his whole body. Yeah. It moved well past just communication to being a completely rich performance, which gradually became a real education in the importance of that. I, I, I've noticed, too, because I go to a lot of shows, now I see a lot of ASL translators at concerts. Right. They aren't just standing or sitting there signing the lyrics. They're presenting the emotion. They, they, right. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like an interpretive dance yeah. kind of a thing where their whole bodies are into it and they're, they're dancing and emotion on their face. Honestly... Uh, it's sometimes person, superior uh, to what we're right, watching. I can actually appreciate, and you know, it can just add like another level to my enjoyment. Well, and this also brings to mind another issue of accommodation that we see with different forms of ability. Let's leave that as one of those big boldface words because we're grappling with it a lot in various forms of corporate America and in higher education, and I think in K twelve education too. How it is that you allow public services, whether it's art and entertainment or access to a building to accommodate the maximum number of people in the public with the least obstacle to getting aboard. Right. So one yeah. of the things I know that we're very aware of is subtitling, whether that's coded subtitles like in silent movies, whether that's not hard-coded subtitles like closed captioning mm -hmm. for the hearing impaired or closed captioning for the people who are distracted, which has always been a shock to me because I am not hearing impaired. I'm visually impaired, but I wear corrective lenses. You add those together, and I am a, quote, normal, unquote, audience member for TV and movies. Right. But I've been in more than a few occasions when I've been around other people who, like me, code well with good sight and good hearing, who like the captions because they can't hear the dialogue very well. Right. Or they don't hear the lyrics of the music very well because, well, they got other things going, or they're folding clothes, or they're beating up their kids, they're babysitting, or whatever's <laughs> going on, right? That stuff has become important to how a lot of people enjoy public art and entertainment in yeah. this example, but I'm somebody who likes to walk up ramps and avoid stairs. Yeah, yeah, so, sometimes. Or sometimes it's just fun to take the long way around. It, it can be. There's there's other things that can to notice what has been built for the accommodation that may be better than what the normally able folks might be doing. In other words, I can lean on and depend upon the subtitle that many visually or, or orally impaired people depend upon themselves. Yeah, we, we depend on the subtitles the same way the Rossies depend on Ruby. Right. Which brings me all the way back around to, I think, how we began our conversation. And I believe my remark then and now is, it's an extremely well-produced, very efficient, well-made, good movie. But it's not one for the ages. Mm. And I sort of always hope that the Academy Award winner will be one of those titles. Yeah, it's, it's weird kind of uh, the the things we sort of project onto what an Academy Award winner mm -hmm. should be. Increasingly, year after year, I find that the distaste for the Oscars grows. Uh, and I oftentimes feel stupid for sort of having that kind of as the bar. Yeah. A, a lot of times when I watch stuff, you know, oh, uh, was it good? Yeah, I mean, it's not going to win any Oscars. Right. But it was, you know... And because it wasn't released in theaters, there's no way to gauge whether the general public 
dug this movie or, or would have dug this movie because of course the theaters really weren't properly open in August right. I mean they were beginning to be but for myself I didn't go Not to the really. theater in 2021 until Barbie and Oppenheimer and <laughs> now people are coming back right even the new Mission Impossible, which I thought would do gangbusters, that didn't even do that well. Right. I, I guess Top Gun was a bit of an outlaw, Top Gun Maverick. Right. But really, going to the movies every week, I haven't seen the kind of crowds like I'm seeing at Barbie and Oppenheimer in I can't tell you how long. Unless I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. It's my experience that the majority of the movie-going public, they're not really into subtitles. Mm-hmm. They There's this prevailing notion that, like, oh, I have to read as well. Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about this because I never... My eyes see words and they're read. I don't... It's... I, and, you know... Maybe I'm, you know, being bigoted to people that are differently abled when it comes to reading, who it is more of a chore, I guess. But unlike the films of Bergman or Godard, you know, because foreign films tend to not be something that most American film viewers are into, this film is something that is very much intellectually and emotionally kind of aimed right at, you know, middle America. So it's a story of a family. We've got... A husband and wife who are deeply in love, they just happen to be deaf, and they want to screw a lot, and they say so. Right. We've got their young adult son who's interested in his baby sister's friend, and they want to do it a whole bunch. Seen that in life. Right. (laughs) They're all doing business in a place where everybody is struggling every day to earn enough to pay their bills, and they're worried about tomorrow. And it's very, very well-maintained. The continuity editing of this movie is completely easy to follow. Mm -hmm. If somebody begins moving right of screen, the next shot's going to be where they're going. The Godard Bergman example, it's not always observed. (laughs) Plus, then, strange things happen on purpose to confront us with our assumptions about how audiovisual media work. Right. And just a little, little trivial note to put into it. One of the things that I've become sympathetic to as I've aged is the way that all of us are going to experience moments of at least temporary disability, whether it's because we we trip a curb, because we accidentally get gouged in the eye, and temporarily we are going to be disabled from the more virile earlier versions of ourselves that we once admired. And because we're all going to experience that, the older we get, the more sympathetic we can be to people who are permanently involved in that experience. Mm But these people are not looking for handouts of sympathy. Yeah, they they seem to not really be bothered right. too much. That you know that they're they're not preoccupied with the fact that they're that they're deaf. But at no point, well, they, except except for when they are confronted with, oh, I'm going to lose my license because I can't hear the boat whistles or whatever. Right. These are things they have to contend with, but they don't seem to have a lot of you know emotional problems. Well, there's two details you know? that that echo this and, and one is the um, the accommodation devices that we see them employ because mm-hmm. they get up at three in the morning to go fishing and it's the light flickers it's a siren inside right. of their home but of course if you're not lucid enough and can't be awakened from it you'll never see it mm-hmm. that also happens on their boat to signal them that there are alerts or a phone right. call that's incoming but again if you're preoccupied not looking up you don't notice the flashes especially in bright sunlight the other is that really powerful scene at least to this viewer where Jackie Rossi, again, this is Marley Matlin, confronts her daughter, Ruby Rossi, and she asks her mother, did you ever wish that I was deaf like you? Well, yes. When you were born, just before they took you to the audio test, I can remember that, but from the other side, I hope my child has hearing and is not impaired. So it echoed that private memory of myself, Mm -hmm. and the honesty of it, I think, is true. 
you want your child to be as much like you as possible for a couple of reasons. And one is so that they resemble you enough that when they're screaming all night with colic, you don't murder them. Right. <laughs> right. But as they grow older, there, must, there might be enough of an affinity between you that your aging relationship through the decades can allow you to still love one another. Mm. And, of course, if you are hearing impaired and your child isn't, well, what's that going to be? Because that child can literally deal with a wider world than you can naturally. And that would cause the child to separate, which is what we see in this movie. So those were good signals mm. to me about yeah. how this movie sort of hit some of the grumbly worries that the non-impaired community of people, the larger community, of which I am part, judge the realities of this movie, that there is a way that you want to kind of tribalize your particular community. Oh, yeah. I think that's human nature. Yeah. Absolutely. These are my co-religionists, and we represent 5% of the overall population, so we're going to put out our shields and protect ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we're, that kind of thing. We're seeing more of that today than ever before. I think the I think the internet has really accelerated that in many ways. And right? it's not just the incels. Right. It's anybody. Right. It's right. anybody. Right. Because it's, it's bringing together these communities of people that it would have been much harder to find. When we see people who have some form of impairment, an easy example. If you meet somebody who doesn't come from your language system, a recent immigrant, who cannot speak the language that's happening around them, but they're trying to make nice with you, one of the different ways that we interpret the outsider who's stepping into the circle is that they must have other deficiencies besides the one we can identify. Right. I point that out because I have been around deaf people or hearing impaired people just enough to watch the non-impaired people who interact with them assume they're also stupid or illiterate. Yeah, right. And we have that lesson drawn by this family who periodically are attempting to sign and communicate with hearing-abled people and then finally just have to write stuff down. Yeah. How well can you speak their language? Right. You're American. Are you I'm trying? guessing not at all. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's like the least important thing to you. And if you actually tried, because learning another language is hard. Yeah especially to become fluently conversational, you have to keep leveling up in a major way to be able to do this. Just because somebody has a certain issue with something doesn't mean that that's going to carry over to other things. And in fact, there's a good chance that they're way better at the things you think they're not than you're giving Which is one reason why Mr. V is an important stand-in for us, Mm -hmm. because he demonstrates with his own multilingual self the importance of being able to communicate across registers to different audiences. Mm. But he points out, I'm an immigrant boy, and and look at what I'm now doing. It's not because I'm some failed musician. It's because I'm a gifted educator. Right, I'm good at this, he says. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's, that's, a, that's an important remark. And he becomes the character who is our point of view. Also, it, it's kind of appropriate to me that Mr. V is trying to teach music which is another language in itself. Right. In fact, he when he's talking to Ruby about applying to Berkeley, one of the things that he mentions is that she's going to have to learn how to sight read. Mm-hmm. As someone who had the temerity to believe they could simply take a few college courses and know what it was to be able to read and play music, it is like learning another language. And in one semester, did I learn to sight read? I guess I can look at a staff. I know where G is. Beyond that, you've got you know your, your time signature and your key signatures and all this kind of stuff. It's it's thematically really the movie is kind of really about learning to understand people. So again, you made an earlier point. That there's a lot of conveniences to this movie. Mm. So be it. 
This is Blockbusters and Bird Walks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and Ed Rosa. Boop, boopity-doo.